This is the Best Friends Podcast, dedicated to sharing the people and programs that are ending the killing of cats and dogs in America's animal shelters. You'll hear from animal welfare leaders from across the movement who will share the innovative and collaborative work that are creating life-saving successes in communities of all sizes. Welcome to the Best Friends Podcast. My name is John Dunn. Today is September the 9th, and I don't need to tell you this, but the COVID-19 pandemic has thrown the earth off its axis. And it's easy to blame lots of things on the pandemic. I mean, I can do it too. Let me try. The only reason I am overweight is the pandemic. I mean, obviously that's garbage. I'm overweight because I love to eat and hate to exercise. But it sounds so much better when I blame it on COVID, right? It's not my fault I was stuffing my face. I put on that COVID-20. Okay, fine, COVID-30. But the truth is I was putting on an extra 20 pounds on in no time long before this thing showed up. I think it's human nature to want to not look at the underlying causes. If for no other reason, then it gets very complicated very quickly. So instead, we just tend to treat the symptoms. And it's no different with the current staffing crisis. Hospitals in Texas face staffing shortages due to burnout. All right, we're back now with another blow to businesses due to the pandemic. Restaurants are now dealing with staffing shortages. Fortunately, what they don't have enough of is workers. The Humane Society right now is short-staffed, and they say they have to cut back on services until they hire more workers. That last clip, Jacksonville Humane Society. They did have to close their public clinic last month, thankfully only temporarily. And we've lined up a couple of people to talk about this. One is a shelter director in Florida, not Jacksonville, but over in the Panhandle, a county with a 5% unemployment rate, tracking about the same as the nationwide numbers in many areas. Definitely not an outlier. John Robinson with Escambia County coming up. And we also spoke with Heidi Voorhees. She's the president and co-owner of GovHRUSA. It's a woman-owned HR recruiting and consulting business. She works with municipal governments and nonprofits across the country, including places like Austin, Texas, where she helped recruit for that community's animal shelter director position. So she knows our industry and she knows how to find amazing people. You know, it says a lot about the people who work in this field. They're very caring, they're very generous, but they're stressed and they're overworked and they're typically underpaid. As I said at the outset, government spending compensation hasn't caught up with the expectations that the public has. The public doesn't want, you know, pets and animals to be euthanized. So that means, you know, you have to have behavioral specialists and you have to have you know, people who are there who can, you know, you have to have access to excellent veterinary services and space for that. And that all comes at a cost. Now, you may be thinking, yeah, John, I know we need to pay more. Don't need an expert to tell me that. But Heidi and I did talk about strategies to attract and retain employees in ways that don't involve pulling out a wad of cash. However, it is important to note, and I want to make sure everyone hears this, nothing is a substitute for paying people a living wage. The staffing crisis is bad in every industry. To understand how bad things are for us, the Best Friends Network team conducted a survey of Best Friends Network partners, organizations of all kinds, municipal, private shelters, rescues, spay and neuter organizations, those focused on intake diversion, some big, some small, some in the middle, located across the country. And the results were expected, but still shocking. 87% of those surveyed said they are operating at a less than full crew. Nine out of 10 organizations. 
We'll have a link to the results of the full survey on the podcast website, bestfriends.org slash podcast. Just scroll down, click on the link for episode 79, and you'll see all of the information in the resources section on the page. So what do these numbers mean in terms of impact? Well, three out of every four organizations surveyed said one impact is that their staff is more stressed than usual. That's quite a feat considering how stressed everyone is normally. So that's three out of four, 75%. I mean, it stands to reason that reduced staff means impacts on life-saving. Those organizations told us that they've had to put events on hold. They've had to cut services for the public. They have a reduced ability to support their adopters and fosters. And with current staffing levels, just over 40% said they simply cannot provide the same level of care for the same number of animals. So to learn more about how one community is faring right now and what they're doing about it, we're going to go to a county in the Florida panhandle. Pensacola is the town you're likely to know. The director of the Department of Animal Welfare for Escambia County. Here's John Robinson. John, can you give me an update on the panhandle overall? How's the life-saving going? Uh, As you know, we had a best friend staff member in the panhandle, part of our embed program. She was next door to you in Santa Rosa County. We actually did an episode pretty early on in the podcast. I think it was 14, episode 14, on what's happening down there. So I want an update. Tell me to start. How have things been going? Yeah, uh, well, you know, obviously COVID was a challenge for the last year. Um, We've dealt with, there's been a lot of challenges over the last year or two that weren't something we anticipated. Between COVID, um, the the, uh, hiring concerns that you have at this point, it's really hard to get people. So those have been challenges for us. Part of the programs that we've dealt with, um, with the COVID thing that I didn't think about was a lot of our, we have such a high turnover of staff or have recently. This staff that I have currently, last year we didn't get, a, we didn't have that huge influx of pets where you're just overcrowded and you have this, this mass amount of animals that are in the facility and, and you're in wire crates some days, things like that, trying to work them through. We didn't have that last year during COVID. And so a lot of my staff this year as that happened. We got that big influx. They weren't here for that. So we had to the stress levels for them was really, really high and something we had to address. So that was a big challenge for us this year. And and then again, just the over, you could, the stress level that you have from COVID itself has been a challenge, whether that's with the staff or the people you invite in and, and uh, the people who don't want to wear a mask, you know, down here in Florida, we have a lot of people that, that you're asking them to wear a mask and they don't want to wear it. So there's a lot of political challenges to that too. So it's a, it's been a, a little bit of a, an obstacle course, so to speak. Watching what they're doing in Santa Rosa is amazing. You know, one of the things I said when I got here is that, and I've been here about eight years now. One of the things I said when I got here is we're going to make a lot of changes and make our shelter better. And we were basically in the same position that Santa Rosa was just seven years earlier. And I said that that's going to reflect to your your community at some point. And people there are going to ask why you can't do the same thing or do some of those programs. And and in some ways, they've even had some programs in place that I haven't been able to do at this point. So. It's really amazing to watch that change throughout the panhandle and to work with a lot of those and have those those communication things has really helped us. And I hope it helps them as well. So what is the save rate in Escambia County right now? Uh, we're we're right at the 90 percent level, honestly, uh, looked at it just not too long ago. And probably since middle of last year, we've been right at 90 percent. It was big on dogs. We've already always kind of been at that number at about 90 percent. And, and when I say at 90%, we're, we're probably just slightly above it for the last year, year and a half. With cats, it had always been a bigger challenge. But some of these programs we've in, installed in the last few years 
have dramatically reduced that number. So we're running right at the same thing, right at about 90% on CAT. What was the save rate when you started? I think you said you started about eight years ago. Less than 20%, honestly. John, that's incredible. Yeah, I'm really proud of it. I'm proud of our team and, and it's and it's community effort. One of the things I said in my first meeting with the public when I got here was we, there are things that we can do in the shelter that could absolutely be better. But the one thing that's absolutely imperative is that this community gets on board too and does their part. It's not something that you can just do inside the building and say, hey, we're not going to euthanize as many animals as we have been we could obviously do that, but to get to the numbers that we needed to get to, um, and again, we're still striving to get that better and better and better every every week, every month, and every year. But to get to that, you have to have that community support, those partner agency support, all those things. You can't do it alone. It's it's impossible. Well, you also can't do it without staff. So on the staffing front, I never want to lose sight of the fact that the jobs in your building in every shelter and rescue facility in the country, those are damn hard jobs. And personally, I've lived a relative life of luxury in my uh, 14 years of paid work in animal welfare. I've never worked in a shelter in an animal caregiving capacity, but economies, pandemics, politics aside, the jobs you are struggling to fill are hard to begin with. Honestly, for the last month or two, I've been out there cleaning kennels with the team and uh, walking dogs, doing all the things that we need to do. So, and it's, I, there's times where I'm in the office and I wish I, Hey, I got, got to spend more time with the animals. Cause I, you know, that, that job has left me a little bit behind. I don't get to spend near as much time as I used to. On the other hand, you get out there and work with them and you're tired when you go home. <laughs> it's, it's, it'll wear you out. I wonder sometimes if that fact is part of it. Uh, you know, so many people, you hear us all the time. So many of my colleagues at Best Friends who worked in sheltering, you know, uh, in the, in their past got into it because they loved animals, but had no idea what was happening inside the shelter until they got there. And really it's, it's a miracle. They're still in the field. Thank goodness they are because they're all incredible people. But sometimes I do wonder if we're doing some of this to ourselves, right? I mean, a 20% save rate at a shelter when you love animals that's not a place that people want to work, you know? Are we just setting people up for failure? John, that's a great point. It's actually something I ask. It's an interview question for me is, what do you think our animal welfare coordinator does? A lot of people think, you know, you'll hear, there's a couple very typical responses in interviews that we have. You know, why do you want this job? And you get the, I love animals, that, you know, that they're almost clapping. I love animals, you know, but I don't like people. Well, guess what? This job is a lot about people. It's probably as much about people as it is about animals at least in our world. And if you don't care about people and you don't want to work with people, it's going to be a problem down the road. It's just not hanging out with puppies and, and that kind of thing. And the other part is just understanding the hard work. Now, we do a lot of rotating. You know, when I got here, they had specific people assigned to the front desk, specific people assigned to intake, specific people assigned literally to the euthanasia room. I mean, they clocked in, went to the euthanasia room and came out eight hours later. Could you imagine? So all those things were horrible. And so we cross-trained everybody. It was one of my first goals was to make sure that this staff could do all the things. They could work the front desk. They could work in adoptions. They could work in intake, euthanasia, whatever they needed to do, because I thought it was important that they be able to, first of all, vary up what their job assignments are. And they get to balance that horrible stuff with the fun stuff. Because that, you know, everybody talks about euth euthanasia being a huge contributor to compassion fatigue, and it is. But intake is sometimes, to me, just as bad. You know, at least at, at where we're at at this point, if an animal is getting euthanized, it's it's a, a medical or a severe behavior issue, things like that. So I don't think those decisions are as hard to make. And I think the staff's on board with those decisions. But the intake where it's somebody that's 
hey, my dog's 12 and I don't want to care for it anymore. Can I go look at your puppies? I think that's really hard on staff. So those are things that we have to balance out and getting to see that positive part, being out there in the adoption area or working with the public and completing families, I think is really important to, to, to make sure you've got that balance for that staff. So staffing is down for you, obviously. I, I don't need you to recite specific numbers necessarily, but just ballpark. What are the numbers staff-wise? Um, honestly, so we had a big challenge. I took over animal control about four years ago. We changed it to animal welfare. Um, they're animal welfare officers now. But I took, a, I took them over about four or five years ago, and we've run at about 30% short on that staff since I've had them. It's just been a real challenge to to keep that fully staffed. And that's hard for me because we require them to go through a 12-week training course with us before we ever turn them loose in the field. Um, in the state of Florida, they also have to get a certification as an animal control officer. All that stuff is required, and then you know they're gone in a few months. Um, we think a lot of that was associated with pay. As far as the animal shelter staff, the last couple of years, we've seen a, a more significant amount of turnover. And I think, again, I think part of that's pay, part of it's the hard job. And and one thing I've always said is we hire, I hire the best people for the job every time. We hire really good customer service candidates, things like that. The problem with that, the one negative to that is that people like to steal those people. If you've got really good employees, people come take them. Um, and so that's part of the problem. You can deal with that a little bit better on the shelter side. It's a little bit harder on the enforcement side. So we've run about 30% vacancies on both sides for the last year, year and a half. But for the last four years, it's probably been that with animal control, animal, you know, the animal welfare enforcement officers. Where are they going when they leave you? Uh, it could be anything. Um, honestly, some of them stay in the field and they go to other um, other animal uh, welfare organizations that pay better or they, they decide to move, things like that. Um, some of them leave the field because it's it's harder than they thought it was going to be or it's not what they signed up for. Just like we mentioned a minute ago, John, that, you know, they think they're going to get to play with puppies and all that. And then they go knock on their first door and, and are like, whoa, I don't know if this is exactly what I signed on for. You know, I think that's a big challenge for us, too, is you put somebody through a 12 week training course and they do some ride alongs. But that I can remember all the way back. I won't go how far back that is. It's been a long time since I've been in the field knocking on doors. But I can still remember the first time, and it's an odd, eerie feeling when you're out there by yourself knocking on somebody's door to, to confront them about issues they're having with their animals. So I think that's part of it. And again, I think our on the shelter side, our people are trained for customer service. They're, they excel at customer service. And so anybody in, whether it's a restaurant industry or just anything that needs customer service people, they'll steal them. And if they're paying better, a lot of times, you know, and I, I don't fault anybody on our staff for doing that. You know, if there's an opportunity to better your life and and take care of yourself. We want them to do that. So, but it's, it, it's been challenging. Yeah. I don't fault anyone either. You know, like you, I've seen too many good people leave because the field it's hard, right? Bad work cultures, compassion, fatigue, and professional career positions paying so poorly that you just can't do it. I don't care how big your heart is. Uh, you know, if you're in a professional position and getting paid next to nothing, not only are you not going to do it, you shouldn't do it because should value yourself more than that, you know? And I, it's so hard because it, ours isn't like, you know, working in a factory. I mean, this is, we're talking about lives on the line. So I know it's easy to say, but definitely difficult to do, you know? Right. No, and I think it's absolutely, you know, I have, I've had a lot of staff over the years that came to me at that entry level job too, and went on to, to great careers in our industry, whether that's in Memphis, whether that's in uh, um, other places in Florida, since I've been here. Um, and, and that's the one thing I, I will tell them if they if this is a career they want, even if they're starting at the entry level, my goal is to make everybody better. My team, it, 
all the way down. It should trickle down all the way through. I want my team to be great. And if they, if that's their aspiration and inspiration is to be a, you know, in my seat. And, and I actually sat one of our employees down in my chair the other day. I said, if that's where you want to sit, this is what you've got to do. That's okay. Sometimes they leave me and they go to other, you know, private entities or they go over to another humane society or whatever. We're looking at the panhandle. How can we help the whole panhandle? Well, if I develop some people that are great and go work somewhere else in the panhandle, great. We've helped the whole community all the way down the panhandle. I think that's great. So I just think you have to take that opportunity to hire the best people and really get the best out of them. And then the other part is just giving them the opportunity to do the things they came to do. I think we always get so focused on the guts of the day, the, you know, let's go through and make sure we get all these kennels clean and all that. And let's stay to that. I think that's great. But if they've got ideas, you've got to listen to them and give them an opportunity to implement those ideas because that's how you're going to get growth and, and better programs and honestly more efficiencies in your program. Absolutely. Work environment plays a part, uh, you know, a big part. I mean, you can pay me $50, $100 an hour, but if the culture is toxic, there's a breaking point for that. And I think, you know, people in the field in those situations do end up staying for longer because of that compassion, right? They're concerned about the animals and in an organization that isn't functioning well, I feel like that might even be harder to leave and believe, you know what, it's going to be okay. It's better off if I leave. No, I think people want to stay because they don't know what's going to happen if they do leave. So what have you done to boost that morale, you know, create a, a positive work environment? First of all, figure out your staff individually. I tell my staff all the time, we, we, I don't treat everybody the same, but I treat them all fair. Um, people are motivated by different things. Some people are there for the animals. Some people are there about money. Some people are there because my wife makes great cookies and, and, and they know I'll show up with them every once in a while. So there's all those different things, but figure out and then make sure you get all those wins and you celebrate them. I think the, the biggest mistake, again, that we make in our industry is we get so focused on the negative and, the, you know, can't believe that person did this or can't believe that person did that. Find those wins and celebrate them and, and make a big deal out of them, because I, I think that that gives your staff that happy feeling. And the happy feeling is what gets them to stay and, and spend more time with you at your organization um, and, and also helps them with the other staff as well. You know, Hey, this was, this was great. Can you believe we did that? They start motivating each other. If you start motivating them that way, John, I struggle with this topic uh, and I'm going to soapbox you here for a sec because it's another that does get political very quickly. You have to talk about pay when we're talking about a staffing crisis. That's a core part of the whole thing. So if we don't talk about it and we're just talking about, you know, like doing nice things for employees, it's just sort of window dressing, right? Like you can have the best internal culture ever, but if you can't pay your rent, is that really a good place to work? You know, I don't know. And I always have to give disclaimers with sensitive topics like this. I feel like I'm speaking for me uh, and, and not for best friends. Okay. So, but we have folks who are saying, well, you know, if we increase minimum wage, then my Chipotle burrito is going to cost twice as much or whatever they're saying. Interestingly, I just happened to see a story this week about Chipotle and that they are raising prices uh, to cover what they say are increases for worker pay. They're raising their prices by 4%. And sounds like a lot, but you know, you're, you're talking about like a, a, a nickel, a dime, a quarter uh, per menu item. So is that crazy? Like, is that really burdensome to the customer? I don't know. But then they also gave their CEO a $24 million raise and they have a billion dollars in the bank, according to that CNBC article. So, you know, I think a lot of American workers are saying, hey, you know, wait a minute here. The pandemic, I think for a lot of people was a catalyst to say, is this job worth more to me than my life? Yeah. I, and I think that's a big challenge. You know, what's interesting for us is we were we had one of the you know, I showed my um, 
leadership repeatedly that we had a dramatic pay inequity with our animal welfare officers and our uh, animal welfare coordinators. I, I mean, dramatic compared to anybody else in the state. We were significantly lower. Um, and I fought and fought and fought for that for years to the point of exhaustion, to the point of sometimes I didn't think I was going to get it done. And, you know, now we've got it where our animal control officers started at a little over $15 an hour. And our animal welfare coordinators are, you know, in the 13 and a half range. The problem now is that what you're seeing is that, you know, Florida is going to a, a $15 minimum wage in the next few years. And so all that gets, I think what you're starting to see now is when you interview people and talk to them, they, their expectation is that they're, they're going to get paid at least $15 an hour for a starter job. And even though we've changed this, we still have that challenge of it's really just a $15 an hour job and I, can I do better? So I think that's always going to be the, the challenge. But I think developing a culture in your organization helps offset some of that. If, if they know they can make $15 here or make $15 at, at, at a fast food restaurant, I won't name any because you, unless you've got sponsorship, we need to talk about. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, it, you know, making $15 at a fast food restaurant well, I'll go work with the animals and that'll be fun and, and whatever. And then we'll weed through those and see who's good and who's not and give them those opportunities. If you were doing it at $15 at a fast food restaurant and $11 for going out and being an animal control officer, nobody's doing that. I, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense in a lot of regards. No, I don't have a fast food sponsor for the podcast yet. Uh, you never know. Although I, probably Chipotle is not going to be one of them. John, hey, thank you for your time, man. And uh, congrats on everything, all the great work, all the good things happening down there. Uh, yeah, I really appreciate it. And I, I'll be happy to talk to you anytime about all the fun stuff we do here. So what's the culprit? Why are we in this predicament? Is it the expanded unemployment benefits we keep hearing about? Maybe it's just laziness. You know, the kids of today, right? They don't like to work, but for jobs that don't pay enough, that don't offer benefits, don't have a positive, healthy work environment and culture, I mean, the pandemic and unemployment benefits, is that really what's keeping workers away? And we can argue about the politics of it. And I'm not kidding. I'd love to. I love a good debate. <laughs> Send me an email, podcast at bestfriends.org. Why do you think things are so bad right now in terms of staffing in animal sheltering and animal welfare? Podcast at bestfriends.org. So let me rephrase that. We can argue about it if you want. Just send me an email. But it really doesn't help us today. If you're a hiring manager anywhere, then you know that it's much more complicated than some talking points from a talking head on some stupid news channel, right? It's much more complicated, but pay is at the root of a lot of it. And John alluded to the difference in his career, the process for hiring and budgets at a municipal shelter, and when he was at a nonprofit, it's massively different. But at either one, it takes more than just a simple snap of the fingers to change this and pay people what they're worth. It will take time. So we should continue to push to pay people in our field what they're worth, but it doesn't deal with the crisis we're in right now. So to learn more about the job market, what workers are looking for, and what strategies employers are using to find and retain employees, we spoke with an expert, Heidi Voorhees with GovHR USA. Heidi, tell me about yourself and the work you do at GovHR USA. Sure. Uh, well, as you know, I co-own a recruitment and selection and management consulting firm. It's called GovHR USA. Uh, we've been in business since 2009. Uh, working, we work exclusively with local governments and, and organizations that work alongside local governments. So we and we also do compensation studies. So we have a hand on kind of what's going on in the marketplace, and we have a temporary staffing business. 
So we've worked in 41 different states, um, done about 900 different recruitments, and we're, you know, we're seeing a lot of challenges on the recruiting side. And I, I should also mention that I spent 19 years working in local government. So I really do understand, you know, what it's like to be on the front lines working with residents, working with the business community, uh, hiring people. You know, I've, I've sat in that seat and had to navigate all of that. So you now I understand uh, what the challenges are. So from your perspective, you know, the work you do, you've got this 30,000 foot view across the country. What are you seeing? Is it as bad as what I'm hearing, seeing in the news? Well, it depends on what um, field you're in. So, uh, and, you know, I would say it's tight across the board. Um, It's particularly difficult in the technical fields. So the more requirements you have, whether it's for a CPA or a wastewater treatment certification or, you know, whatever, the more the more the, of that that you have in your requirements, the harder the position can be to fill. And I also think in, in, in your area, in the animal services arena, you know, it's, it's a new field, really. You know, the, the approach to animal care and animal services is completely different than it was you know, 10 years ago. And I don't think that government spending has caught up with the expectations that the public has. And those expectations are very high for what they want uh, to happen in shelters and, and the sort of re- kind of resources it takes from a staffing standpoint and from a capital expenditure standpoint to have the actual facilities Um, One of my clients, as you probably know, is the city of Austin, which, you know, I've worked with them on, you know, three different times on filling their chief animal services officer position. And throughout that time, they've, you know, built a new facility and they've um, really done a lot of important work and outreach with rescue groups. And and the last time I was there, you know, they were housing animals in their conference room. They had, you know, and the director, the animals, the interim director had them in her office. I mean, they were out of space. So, and this is a brand new facility. Yeah, who needs an office? <laughs> right. And she was happy to do it, which is, you know, it says a lot about the people who work in this field. They're very caring. They're very generous, but they're stressed and they're overworked and they're typically underpaid. So I think, um, you know, I think, as I said at the outset, government spending compensation hasn't caught up with the expectations that the public has. The public doesn't want, um, you know, pets and animals to be euthanized. So that means, you know, you have to have behavioral specialists and you have to have, you know, people who are there who can, you know, you have to have access, access to excellent veterinary services and space for that. And that all comes at a cost. So the pay, wages, it's so critical to this. I spoke with John Robinson. He's the shelter director in Escambia County in Florida. And I'll I'll be honest, I had a pretty obnoxious John Dunn uh, soapbox moment when I spoke with him about this. So I'll I'll spare you the long version. But I, I think across the board, we do not pay people in this field nearly enough. And now with the pandemic, I feel like, you know, Heidi, we've taken an already emotionally brutal field where compassion fatigue is not taken seriously enough and the low pay and no benefits. And now you want me to go into a place where I'm, you know, potentially risking my own health, 
the health of my family and friends, as John pointed out, you know, his staff are dealing with like angry people in the community, mad about masks. And, you know, you, you want people to go do that for like eight fifty an hour. No, thanks. Yeah. At times, if they're putting themselves at risk, for sure. And it's, um, I think that this world, you know, the, the work that you all do through best friends and the work that's been done, you know, across the country, it's, it's a profession now. This is a profession and there are real skills that are needed in order to effectively answer what the public wants in their shelters and in their, the care of animals. And we have to, I think it's, you know, it's important to recognize that. And, and the problem is that, that the pipe, you know, the pipeline of people who are trained are just coming up. You know, you're just seeing that. So I think um, in hiring, you have to get creative and look at look at skill sets that are transferable. And we've worked with a couple of clients on that where, you know, if, if there's a, a passion for the work and they've got some solid administrative skills and organizational skills, there, it's at least worth interviewing the person to see if it's going to be a fit. And I think, and I frankly say that with a lot of disciplines that, it, you know, if you're looking for lockstep, you know, this person has to have these exact things in this exact time frame, you're, you're going to be very frustrated. Well, it's funny you say that because I actually think I'm one of those people. Uh, I've often said that I really need to do great work at Best Friends and stay employed here because on paper, I mean, what even is this guy? You know, what have I done? I, I don't know. I can do lots of stuff. What do you need? Uh, I, but still, not a lot of employers, I feel like, look for that. They want that package that makes sense. You know, what? how do I even use a guy like John Dunn? And I just don't have the educational or work experience in a way that would even get me, I think, past the first round of a hiring process at most places. And that rigidity in hiring, you're just going to miss great people, which at a time like this is terrible. Yeah, it doesn't, it, it should not be a knee-jerk response in a job description that you have to have a bachelor's degree. I don't know why, but we really have worked hard to say, is that really necessary? You know, is it really necessary when you look at the work that needs to be done? Can you just have it as preferred? You know, just give yourself that window of potential candidates who might have gotten close, but for whatever reason didn't finish their degree or didn't, you know, find their way to a school. I mean, that's, you know, we all know so many people and you're a great example of that. They have a lot to offer and, you know, and aren't going to have that one credential that could hold them back. Yeah. And we work really hard to get our clients to take a look at their job descriptions. And sometimes job descriptions are written by the people who've been in the job for five years, 10 years, whatever. And, and they become so constricting that it doesn't allow you to um, to bring in people. And, and it frankly, it can hurt because not only are you not getting the candidates and you're missing out on some potential that's out there. Um, and so you have to look at these jobs. Does this job really require a bachelor's degree? Really, honestly, what are you gaining by that? Does this or can you say, you know, or equivalent experience or, you know, those are the kinds of things that we try to encourage our clients to do is to take a hard look at what you're actually requiring. Do you really need five years experience working in a shelter to have this next level experience? Maybe two years is enough. 
you know, maybe five years in some other administrative capacity. So really to be flexible in looking at how you, uh, how you, what you have in the job requirements and then how you look at potential candidates and what are their skills and what is their potential as opposed to do they check all these boxes? The economy is coming back. I think the unemployment rate is about 5%. Still a lot of jobs open out there, obviously, and it does feel like a good job market for employees. So how do I, as an employer, get noticed? How am I getting my open positions in front of the right people uh, so they know we're hiring and, and that we're the right place to work for them? Absolutely. Well, one thing is, I a lot of times our firm is brought in when, a, when an organization has tried two or three times to fill a position and they haven't been successful. And there's a couple of things that we typically find they've done wrong. One is they either it's the either they haven't advertised the compensation or it's the way they've advertised it. So, you know, advertise an annual compensation and put in a range that you're willing to pay, not you know, not the, the, the highest end if you never intend to pay that at the start. You know, put in what the range is. So that's one thing. The other thing that we often find is the way they've done outreach. They've put it on their municipal website or maybe, you know, I hope nobody's still using the newspaper. But if they are, this is the time to stop doing that. And they are not using social media. And that is where it's at. And it's not hard to do, you know, using LinkedIn, using, you know, using Facebook, using Instagram, letting your community know that you have use next door, let your community know that you have these opportunities. I was doing a, a webinar for a group of rural administrators and mayors in Ohio. And one of the mayors when I said that, you know, he said, oh, my gosh, we just did that. We couldn't fill a job. And I put it out on my Facebook page and we had 10 applicants that I thought were great. It works. We use it. And, and so you need to be creative. And it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to cost you more money. But you need to get the word out. You need to write a decent announcement that talks about the job, gives the information, gives the pay, how to apply, um, and then keep the process moving. You know, the, the employees that are coming into the workforce are not going to wait six months for you to email them back and say, thank you, we got your application and we'll be back in touch in two months. They're already on to the next opportunity. So those employers and um, that can be nimble and move that process along and to keep the, keep the candidates engaged are going to be the ones that get the candidates. There's just a great book um, that was put out. I'll show you. That's called Public Sector Pivot. It's by um, Caitlin Rentala, who is a member of the Gen Z generation. And it's how Gen Z will lead a renaissance in public service. And she's focused a lot on the federal government. But there's a lot of tips in this book that talk about how to tap into that next generation. And the great news about this group and, and about millennials, too, is they they want public service. They want they are driven by service and pat you know passion for what they do. And you can't get any better than the animal services world for that. I mean it's built it's baked in. So now how do you connect with them and get them in your door and and capitalize on that passion? Well it's not unique to our field, but 
you know, generally I, I feel like the lowest level of employees in a, in a company, in an organization, those staff members, the jobs seen really purely as entry level, right? So they're paid at obscenely low levels. Uh, and in a lot of communities, I have no idea how people can pay for a roof over their heads and food and, and kids for, you know, even $11 an hour. Uh, and again, I don't know if it's intentional, but it's seen as that entry level work. So they won't be here forever. Why even bother investing in them? That attitude, intentional or not, it's so, it's just not healthy. Because I feel like you're going to treat that person in that way while they're working for you. And so, you know, listen, if you're doing that, I feel like a pl that place of employment probably has a bad culture and not a good place to work. Hopefully some of the changes we're seeing now in the kind of balance in the job market, that's something that you're seeing less and less of. And people are hopefully being valued uh, in the way that they should be. Oh, yeah. Well, and you said the magic word, and that's culture. Culture matters. And if you're going to, you know, people will stay with a, um, you know, a not great job that maybe doesn't pay so well if they like who they work with, if they feel valued, if they feel listened to. Um, if they feel a part of a team, all of those things matter. And if um, and if they're treated with respect, <clears throat> so that cult that's all a part of the culture. And the workplace culture is set by the leader of the organization or the manager. And those things matter. Doesn't mean the pay doesn't pay. You know, pay will also always matters. But if you can bring a positive workplace culture in, in you're going to be light years ahead. Acknowledging that perks are not a substitute for pay, there are things that you can do to make it a better place to work, happier. You know, here at Best Friends, our CEO, Julie Castle, made a very conscious effort to prioritize people. And I cannot tell you how great it is to have perks and benefits and work at a place where you feel valued as a person, not just as a, you know, a, a number, if you will. And there are a lot of ideas that, you know, help create a better work environment, help people feel valued, and they don't cost a lot of money. Right. Yeah, it's about respect. It's about flexibility sometimes. You know, if you can be work with people's schedules and give them the schedule that they're, that's why, you know, I'm positive. That's one of the reasons Uber and Lyft and ride-sharing services are so such popular part-time jobs because people can do it when it works for their schedule. Now, not everyone can offer that kind of flexibility. Of course, you have to be staffed. But, you know, if you can have some consideration for the person's situation, work with them on their schedule, you'll, you get a lot of loyalty in return. And, and then in those emergency situations, when you really need staff, people will respond because they're, they feel a connection to the organization. So I think you can do a lot with culture and a lot with respect. And, and that's, you know, it's having employee meetings and listening to employees and, you know, taking their suggestions. You know, the people who are doing the day-to-day -day work have the best ideas on how to improve the situation. And seeing your ideas come to fruition is very empowering and can be a very positive thing in the workplace. Well, I think a lot of employees would have one suggestion, uh, pay us more. <laughs> well, that's fair, you know, and sometimes you can, as you said earlier, and sometimes you can't. And, you know, the, and your answer is I would love to. And if I and I'm working on that. But, um, you know, that's this is the best we can do. I, and I think just being honest with people about the reality of the situation, um, you know, letting them know what what you're doing, 
you know, if, if it's working, if it doesn't say, you know, we got turned down, you know, I went in, I, I did fight hard in the budget process, but we did get turned down for reclassifying this position. You just have to let people know what's going on and be honest with them. And doing research for the episode, you know, the talking heads out there, the experts, many seem to put all of this down to the extended unemployment benefits, that as long as people don't have to work, they say, that they won't, right? Uh, the experts quoted oftentimes folks in the same line of work as yourself, you know, big recruiting firms. I just don't buy it. Are there people that would rather sit on the couch and not work? Sure. I definitely have my own days, quite frankly. But how many people? Because I, I, I think people, particularly in our field, Heidi, they want to work. They want to help. We're caring people. They want to help the animals. None of us just want to sit on the sidelines while we know what is happening in shelters is happening. So again, on the whole, I don't think people want to sit on the couch. They're just not going to get off it anymore to be treated like crap, treated like they're disposable and not have enough money to live on. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I agree. <clears throat> I agree. And I think it's much more complex. You know, when you're not, you have to take into account what's going on in families people who have children, people who have children who, who you know, normally would be in school or at camp or what, you know, childcare. And it's, it's scary right now for all of those. And, and a lot of people aren't able, you know, they're not comfortable sending their kids into those environments. And I certainly don't blame them. So it's, you know, I think to just say that it's, they're just staying home because they're getting money is not at all um, looking at the big picture and not looking at some of the really tough decisions that families are facing and trying to navigate, um, you know, at, with respect to their children, with respect to their parents. You know, they do they want to go back and work at a restaurant when they could bring the Delta variant back home and give it to their, you know, their parents or their elderly relatives that may live with them? I mean, it's I've seen this in my own family where I've had family members who've had to really take a hard line with an employer who, you know, because they they live with a, you know, an, an older in-law and and that employer is saying, well, you got to come back. Well, they're not doing the things they're supposed to be doing with respect to protecting their employees. So, you know, I think it's a very complex discussion and way oversimplified to say that it's just that people are getting more money and you know by staying at home. Federal minimum wage is what seven bucks an hour, seven twenty-five. So without a reason to do more, I think a lot of places just haven't done it. Right, the government not keeping up that minimum wage with the cost of living. Uh, you know, I, I've actually come across articles uh, and studies that show fifteen dollars an hour still doesn't cover the average cost of living in a lot of places. So we're at this moment, I think, where the average American worker, like they've kind of got the upper hand, if you will strong negotiating power. And they're saying, you know, you want me to come work here? You got to fix it because it's not good enough. Well, and it's not, you know, they have to do their own risk assessment to, you know, they, they might have one point said, okay, well, it's a job and I'll go to it and hope for something better. Well, when you layer over, you know, a deadly disease, or, you know, out there and virus, that's, that's a huge consideration. And when you have unvaccinated children at home and you have elderly relatives, it, it, it's a very tough call. And I've seen a lot of families wrestling with that. So, you know, I think, uh, as I said, it's, a, it's more complex 
there will be people listening to this. I mean, hopefully at least one person is listening to this and they might even be mad at me because they're, you know, not in a position to pay more. And they are saying, John, I get it. I want to pay more, but I can't, right? Uh, I'm working on it, but it's going to take some time. So what can they do in, in lieu of that? Are there examples maybe where public-private partnerships have helped in this way in, in different communities or maybe volunteers, such a core part of how we save lives. And I know a lot of us, best friends included, are trying to figure out ways to, to get volunteers involved more and use more effectively. Yeah, you know, I have, I know the animal services industry has really always benefited from the cadre of volunteers who come in. And, I, and it's absolutely wonderful. You know, I think it's a great piece of community building. It does, um, you know, whenever you have volunteers doing so much of the work, you're not ever really getting the true cost of what the services that you're providing. And I think it's very easy to say, well, we'll just get more volunteers to do that. And, and sometimes that's a lot to ask of the volunteer community. So I think, um, I think it's wonderful and I think it's um, very impressive, but I also think we have to keep in mind what we're asking and what and how we actually, um, you know, how that kind of lets government off the hook a little bit on fully funding what they should be with, you know, going back to my initial thought about the expectations of the public. But I think you're absolutely right moving forward. I've seen um, cities and counties work together on shelters. And also, and the thing that's going on that I think is so great in the animal services world is the um, sort of the, you know, when in the South, you've got, uh, in, in many cases, there's a, um, there's, oh, shelters are overflowing. There's other parts of the country where people are looking for animals. And the animal services world has created this network of, of, organizations that move these animals, you know, that are overflowing in one place to another place that is seeking animals. So I think, you know, it's a, such a great um, example of redistributing, you know, the, the resources in, throughout the country. But I've definitely seen in metropolitan areas, um, you know, relationships grow out of necessity. And sometimes that's what it takes. We have to be so desperate that we actually start thinking very creatively where, you know, we'll, cities and counties will work together. They'll come together to create a shelter. They'll leverage their relationships with rescue groups. They'll, you know, all of these things have to be a part of the solution because as much as the public funds should be there, I think they're not. So for hiring managers, what can they do better? How can they make sure they're getting the right people? Uh, you know, maybe more importantly, not missing the good, the good ones. No, I would. Well, I the only other thing that I would say is um, sometimes in hiring people, especially earlier when they're hiring earlier career people, they might look at somebody's resume and say, well, this person has job hopped. You know, they've been at this job for two years and that job. That's a very normal thing when someone's in their 20s and kind of looking for the job that they want. In fact, the Bureau of Labor Statistics says from the time you're 25 to 34, you're going to have four and a half jobs. That's roughly two jobs, you know, a job every two years. This is very normal and it's even more normal for millennials and Gen Z. You know, they're going to, they're going to, if they're not happy, they're going to move and they can move because the opportunities are there. So, you know, I think, um, 
really look at what's why somebody has changed jobs. Take the time to interview them. Get you know find out a little bit about them because I think there are a lot of snap judgments that are made about resumes that keep people keep organizations from hiring you know really good people. And there's you know there's also a whole blind resume thing, which I'm a big fan of. You know that you know we bring unconscious bias to the table. Oh, that person went to school where I went. So, you know, they're going to be, they'll be great. And or you know, the, all kinds of different things that people bring to the table. Um, so I think it's, it's important to recognize where someone is in their life, not where you are in yours, as you look at the, at their resume and their, um, you know, what they bring to the table. You just touched on DEI there, the biases we bring, uh, to everything we do, right? It includes hiring. There's a pretty well-known study. uh, It looked at how hiring managers reacted to the names of the applicants. If I remember correctly, it was something like two versions of essentially the same resume, both going for the same job. Anytime the candidate had a name that sounded non-white, they got called for the interview less often, quite a lot less often, in fact. Uh, You know, is this conscious probably far too often, but a lot of it is subconscious and great people aren't getting hired because, you know, they're, they're just being held back for being who they are. Uh, and I, w- I wish we had more time, Heidi, because DEI and, and part of the hiring process, it's such an important topic. Oh yeah. And organization, well, organizations must embrace DEI be, and they must do it. It's not the moral, the moral case is the business case for diversity. There's no question about that. And that is an expectation the millennials have, the Gen Zers have, they expect this. So organizations have to be serious about it. It can't be performative. It can't be checking the box. They've got to really engage their employees and, and, and care about them having a career path in their organization and do the kind of outreach um, that reflects their community and reflects the general population, you know, when they bring candidates in. So that's um, that's just a given moving forward. The workforce of tomorrow is here today, and they expect that, and it's the right thing to do. Heidi, I appreciate you, and uh, listen, thank you for taking the time to chat with me about this. Thank you. It was a pleasure. We'd love to hear from you on this issue podcast at bestfriends.org. How is the staffing crisis affecting you and your organization? More importantly, what have you done to combat it? Have you figured out some tips and tricks that have worked? We'd love to help you share them with all of your peers around the country. Send us an email podcast at bestfriends.org. The producers, Tawny Hammond, Amy Charlton, Bethany Hines, Kayla Sebo, Whitney Blyton, and Mark Peralta. My name is John Dunn, and this is the Best Friends Podcast.